Wilma, you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman. I'm the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back for this segment of our program. Uh, during our second segment today, we'll be speaking with Rabbi David Bush of the Chabad Jewish Center of Petaluma to talk a little bit about the upcoming Yom Kippur observance and our Feast of Tabernacles. But here during the first segment, we have as our guest Maggie Fishman, who is the, a member of the board of the Santa Rosa Junior College and has been the president for almost two years, the president of that board. So welcome to the studio this morning. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And we recognize that SRJC, known as SRJC mm -hmm. in the community, is a very vital part of not only uh, Sonoma County in general, but our Petaluma campus has had quite an impact on our community over its many years. So it's great to have you here. I understand you're also running for the board again, and you're unopposed. I am luckily unopposed. I'm okay. very thankful about yeah. that. I'm so. sure you are. It takes a lot of pressure off at this season of the right. year, right? This gives me more time to serve. That's great. <laughs> that is great. So before we get into SRJC and um, the life of a junior college <laughs> and a junior college president of the board, what? Uh, how did you get to this, and where, what's your background, and how long have you been in Petaluma, and you know some of that stuff in your life? Okay, just a little bit of a bio. It all started in 1969 when I graduated from high school in the East Bay, and um, my parents weren't quite sure what to do with me. I think they wanted me out of the house. I didn't really have very good grades. I was a little distracted in high school for a variety of reasons. So I was sent up to Santa Rosa to be under the watchful eye of my family in Santa Rosa that had been here since the 1850s. And I went to Santa Rosa Junior College and spent two years there, had um, two roommates actually from Japan, which was so provided me at the end of two years. I went and lived in Japan, came back. Um, I was a police science major, wanted to be a probation officer, came back to Sonoma County, continued school, decided that police science was not my path and went to Sonoma State in political science and wound up uh, working on political campaigns and worked in Sacramento as a legislative aide to the assemblyman from Santa Rosa and worked for the state senator, uh, John Dunlap and Mike Gage. Lived in Sacramento for nine years as well as my husband who also worked for the legislature. Um, Bill was a consultant to the Water Parks and Wildlife Committee. and. Eventually, when that gig ended, because um, my boss decided to go run Jerry Brown's campaign for um, the presidency, he uh, left office, and I went to work at USC School of Public Administration in Sacramento and got some academic experience there. We moved back to Sonoma County when Bill finished law school in 1984 and had another baby, got a secondary cre teaching credential, taught for 20 years at Montgomery High in Santa Rosa, then decided to run for office when I retired. Wow. It's quite a way to spend your retirement, <laughs> isn't it? It's quite a way to spend with you in your retirement. It takes time to do this job. Yeah. So what, what's your passion around uh, this job? What, what is there about the junior college, the junior college system, 
are particular ones that really attracts you to it? Well, the whole community college system, um, sans my experience, you know, it gave me a new opportunity. It allowed me to redefine myself. Um, It opened up tremendous opportunity, and it does that today for students. It is, I think, and some people might think I'm getting corny, but it is the great equalizer in public education. K-12 is not always an equitable place, but if you walk into that, any junior college, they're going to take care of you. They're going to give you a second chance to to figure out what you want to do, where you want to go, and they'll educate you. You need help learning English, we're going to help you learn English. You want to be a nurse, we're going to provide that opportunity. You want to be a firefighter, you want to transfer to a four-year college. It really, to me, is really important in our democracy um, to have access for everybody to public education. And so that's at the heart and the essence of my motivation. And, uh, yes, so SRJC has how many students? We have about 28,000 students. We have five, well, we have two campuses, the Petaluma SRJC in Santa Rosa, which is the main campus. But we also have Schoen Farm out in Forestville. We have the Public Safety Center in Windsor, California. Um, and uh, the Southwest Center off a of right road. Well, to help people, um, it's a non-credit school mostly, and helps people learn English. And how many non-English speakers? I mean, that, that's an unfair question to ask you. How <laughs> many non-English speakers? No. <laughs> I, I don't think you can pull that one out of the air. But I assume a good segment of the population of the student body is our English as second language. Yeah, I would. The Hispanic population, I would. Between 30 and 35 percent. Okay, that's a significant so, and portion. growing, and right. it's reflective of, I believe, the county. Yeah, right. So, um, what's new in the co- well, what's what's on the agenda for the JC? Well, what's new, right? This is our hundredth anniversary. We have been a junior college. We like to call ourselves a junior college, not a community college, although we're in the community college system. There are two junior colleges, Modesto Junior College and Santa Rosa JC. So we're having our 100th anniversary, and it's been filled with uh, recognition of our past history. Uh, There is a community picnic coming up on Sunday the 22nd, if anyone's interested in attending. It is difficult to walk into a room anywhere in this county and not have someone connected with a junior college. If you ask people if they've been to the junior college, do they know someone from the junior college, almost everybody raises their hand. It's our collective jewel. Is that <laughs> our collective jewel in, in Sonoma County? So um, this year we're honoring that. And that's, a, that's a great occasion, of course. That's a great occasion. Uh, so what, you said you prefer junior co- the name junior college because that's what it's been, or... Is there something about people's conception of what a junior college was? You know, I, I don't know if it's just the branding that we've always had. When we started out in, in 1918, it was really um, a, a feeder school for Stanford and Berkeley. And that's why we're the red and the blue. Uh-huh. You know, those are our school colors. And it, of course, morphed into way more than that. And I doubt people in from 1918, if they were to come and visit, would, would recognize the school and, and the breadth of educational opportunities that, that we offer. But so. well, I'm aware that uh, SRJC has a wonderful reputation for being a great school and helpful to the students and uh, a pathway for people 
struggling on one hand to find their way in the world, but also people who want to stay closer to home in the initial stages of their education, and they might transfer elsewhere from there. So what? So obviously the tuition at a junior college is significantly, significantly lower than in the uh, state university systems, and and of course for private colleges. So, but it still costs a lot of money to run an institution such as this. So, how does funding work for you? So, most of our funding comes from the, the state. Uh-huh. Most of it. The tuition is forty-six dollars a unit, and I would say that when we first that is relatively, you know, within the last forty years that we've even had tuition at the community colleges. Uh, many of our students are on what we call a BOG waiver, which is Board of Governors waiver, so that the tuition is waived. We have uh, an exceptional uh, situation in Sonoma County with the Doyle Scholarship that no other community college has. Many of our students can go to um, the junior college with, with relatively little cost for tuition. What is a problem and a growing problem and a challenge for us in Sonoma County is housing for students. Um, and there are certain barriers, transportation barriers, housing barriers, as things get more expensive. It's just not tuition that may, uh, might, um, in, you know, make it so kids have, a, or not even kids, um, students have a hard time attending school. There's other barriers out there, just not tuition. So, uh, so th- there's no connection to the Federal Department of Education and all the politics that are going around nationally, what's happening? Not, not in a, 2% of our funding comes from the, the, the feds. Um, certain things will, will trickle down to us, but most of um, the guidance, and that's being a generous term, comes from the state of California uh-huh. uh, in terms of our funding mechanisms, which our funding mechanism is changing. We were on a, a system which many people are familiar with, ADA and the K-12. We were FTES which is virtually the same thing. And now we have a new funding mechanism that is a triad of uh, FTES helping um, how well we help underserved students and how well um, what our graduation rate is. So it's a, it's a new day in terms of the funding. We're working through exactly what it means for SRJC as all the community colleges in the state are doing the same thing. So is there a deficit Booming, or what's we, that like? We have we have some economic challenges. Yes, <laughs> don't you like how I say that? Of course, uh, <laughs> economic challenges used, used to be called a deficit, <laughs> right. but now we call it a, economic a, challenge. Right. That we have that, and the the school the, the school as a whole um, through our community of of staff and faculty and administration and the board are looking at ways to resolve our. Um, our economic challenges, and we're moving in the, in the correct direction, whether it's not, uh, we hope it will not involve any kind of uh, loss of jobs, that things will be done through attrition, and come when people leave, we combine positions, and we're looking at, at those kinds of long-term solutions at this point. Right, right. so no major, because a number no. of years ago, there was, uh, during the financial crisis, there were cutbacks in the classes, and it really had a profound effect on the, on the faculty and the students, right. of course, ultimately. 
We, we do um, reduce sections. If Some sections, if they're under 20, that's part of the contract with the faculty. Um, that doesn't happen if, if we're keeping some less than 20 pupils, if the class is important for a particular transfer program or completion of a certificate program that's needed. But, but we are looking at, you know, not holding classes for six students. That has to be part of what we look at. Right, and that's uh, totally understandable. Yes. So what's, what's the uh, political climate like on campus? Um, some of the uh, colleges are known for their political activism, um, protesting this, protest. San Francisco State has its whole uh, culture uh, around it historically. Right. Um, anything happening at SRJC or is it more benign? Well, I think, yes, I think that political things do happen at SRJC, and they tend to be more issue-oriented than political party-oriented, um, whether it's, it's supporting um, undocumented students and immigration policy, and that we had, uh, uh, we were one of the, the first schools to have um, a sanctuary letter um, after the election of the president, and so... I would say that it's it's not so political in terms of political parties as it is issue oriented. That issues that people the LGBTQ community is very active. I attended a Bridges uh, meeting yesterday, and so they're an activist group. But it, it surrounds specific issues rather than political party ideology. I would say. So. You know, um, some schools are commuter schools, and I think the JC is mostly, if I'm not incorrect, a commuter school. Correct. And the sense of community that's developed in a commuter school is a little different than a residential campus where students come from afar and live in the dorms or live in apartments uh, surrounding the campus. And um, has that does that have any role in, how is that addressed in any way in these? In these Absolutely. Schools? But we're always trying to improve what we would call student life and how, um, you know, the sense of community on campus. And that's done through um, a very rather substantial club program that both many of the campuses have clubs, um, whether, like I just mentioned, the Bridges Club. Uh, so that is one way to address it. Uh, in Petaluma, we're going to be reworking with some of the Measure H bond money. One of the the points in the back of our head is is you know creating um, how can we change the campus to create more of a sense of, of community and student life, and uh, whether we change the food system, um, you know, however we do that. So that is always at the forefront. I want to mention housing. Housing, I mentioned before, is, is a problem. Um, there are a lot of students that um, are at risk about housing, and the community college is looking into the possibility of doing a private partnership um, to build some housing. So that is in our forefront and in, in our minds about how to help the students with the housing issue. There are apartments around the main campus. I lived in one of them. <laughs> in 1969, and it's still there. So some students do live close, but, but you're absolutely right. We're a commuter school. Yeah, so, I mean, the housing issue is, for Sonoma County, is, right. is an issue across the board in terms of uh, getting employees to be able to get housing, sufficient wages to be able to afford the, the whole, whole complex picture. Right. So I can imagine that 
for the students. And of course, constructing housing is an expensive project uh, also. So that would be uh, um, uh, no doubt on your agenda. Um, and how's the, the faculty getting along with the president these days? We had some uh, issues last year about that. What's, uh, yes, we did. It was, we had some, some bumps in the last year, and last spring in particular. Uh-huh. Um, to our president's credit, he accepted responsibility, and the board um, was extremely supportive of the president and still is, and resolving those issues. And I actually think that, you know, there was bit of a cleansing in the air that happened, and I'm very optimistic, and we're moving in a positive direction, um, that at the last board meeting, um, positive feedback from faculty and staff about the direction we're moving in, reevaluating our shared governance processes, um, and working at really listening. The board is working at really listening, not, not just, just not hearing, but internalizing what we hear. Right, and be able to process it right. in a way that Right, and the president there. is doing that as well. Dr. That's Tong right. is a, uh, a rock star, and uh, we are happy to have him. That's great. So let's, let's for the talk about the Petaluma campus a little bit, since we're addressing <laughs> our Petaluma con- uh, right. our community here. Right. And uh, how long has the Petaluma campus been around? Well, Petaluma has had a SRJC presence for... 50 years, okay. starting in the Butcher's Hole up on, I don't even know what street it was on, and moving to the fairgrounds. And so we've had a, a long historical presence here in Petaluma, and it was built uh, 20, 20 years ago, the, the Petaluma campus. And we have uh, one of our trustees, Harold Mahoney, was sort of the, the fighter for that, for that campus to be built and where it's built. And so it is now, and I hope everyone has been there, it is it's becoming sort of the center of the college community on the east side. I mean, that's what it's referred to as the college community. And it has not only wonderful classes, but uh, has community programs that people participate in, whether it's our cinema series on Wednesday nights. If no one has ever been to this, they need to go. There's uh, lecture series uh, prior to the showing of the films. I saw Shape of Water there last year, Lady Bird. Uh, November 7th, they are doing Black Klansmen, and I'm holding off seeing it just so I can go listen to the, the presentation beforehand. Um, so there's a wonderful opportunity for, for um, academics, and there's a wonderful opportunity for community involvement in the Petaluma campus. How might one find information out about those programs? On our website, okay, and on the, and you can go to Petaluma SRJC. Uh-huh. That's our official title. Okay, and find out more, or you can probably the film series. You can just go Petaluma film series. dot dot com. Oh yes, dot thank com you. At the thank end. you. Oh, well, dot, no, it's going to be dot edu. Excuse dot me. Edu. Hello, hello. Of course. Okay, we've got it. Wanted just yeah. wanted to get that sense. I know in the uh, over 13 years that I've been around here that the campus has physically uh, been altered a lot. There's a lot of changes, construction, and realignment of the facilities and, and usage. Anything else happening in the near future with the campus? Right, right. We're going to 
with Measure H money, most of the, the last bond, Measure A, went into the expansion of the camp, campus. So we're not quite receiving quite as much money this time, but that's a fair thing. Um, we're going to change the focus of the opening of the campus. Um, so it's just visually more welcoming. There will be a new student affairs center. Um, the bookstore is going to be flipping with student affairs. We're going to have a vet tech program, and our science um, wing is going to be upgraded. Uh, I believe it, it's actually done. The, the vet tech program is so. There, there are um, internal changes going on that m many of them will be like visual that you can actually see that will help. Mm -hmm. I think draw people, more people, into the Petaluma campus. I think it's uh, it's certainly a, a major, major asset for our Petaluma community to uh, have that campus here and to have the students uh, being able not to have to drive all the way up to Santa Rosa, but to be able to get their education in their home community, and it's great. So I think you mentioned there are 150 certificate programs? About, wow. approximately. And, uh, what are these certificate programs? Well, okay. if they range anywhere from wastewater treatment plants to uh, landscaping, flower arranging, um, there's a variety of things for a variety of length of time that you can take these programs. Um, it's through our uh, career technical education, which is, you know, huge on the Petaluma campus. Um, Career technical education, we used to call it vocational ed. Uh -huh. Now the new name is career technical education. Uh, we have a very strong career tech program with a tremendous involvement out of the community for these programs, which is uh, just last board meeting there, we were approved a list of contacts and people that, that are sponsoring our career technical education program in a plethora of, of fields from the county. It, it was most impressive. So employers are wanting, uh, not necessarily for those who aren't interested in it, a, a degree of some sort, but, Absolutely. but a particular focus in uh, a particular business, a particular right. skill, and a certificate program in that. So, bookkeeping. Uh, bookkeeping, right. Those. That's wonderful. That's right. wonderful. I think the community needs to know more about that because more students who might doubt whether they should go to college mm -hmm. and pursue a four-year college degree right. might want to think about looking at the certificate programs to see what interests them and exactly. what, where there might be jobs available. Exactly. Um, I, I've, I've always worried about uh, our American education system of training people in different things, uh, whether it be vocational or even degrees, but there are jobs for them. And so... I've always felt in the, uh, that the schools providing the education need to also provide the students with the information about, you know, can you really get a job in this field of, you know, learning how to trim leaves from two branches and get a certificate <laughs> in that when there might not be jobs in those fields. So I, I don't know how the, how the JC, you know, looks at how they decide what programs are needed, but my my, my just commentary here is that the schools, I believe, have an obligation to uh, let the students know where there are jobs and what's, what it's best to train for. As well. But that's my, I'm not running for the board. No, but you could. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the magical thing about right. the community college system uh -huh. is what it really provides and the access it provides and the, the opportunity it provides, you know, 
and it's, if you want to go to a four-year college, we're going to take care of you. And if you want to do something else, we're going to we're going to help you and take care of you. And you know, well, so um, what's it like running for office? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> what's it? What you know? What's it like? You when the, this this time is easier, obviously. Clearly. Um, what was it like the first time? And it was. Nerve-wracking. I mean, I've run a lot of political campaigns in my life. When I was with the legislature, I would leave my job, come back and live with, in Pengrove, on the chicken farm with my in-laws for four months at a time, and Bill would stay in Sacramento and run campaigns. But it is really terribly different when it's you on the line, uh-huh. and you're faced with exposure um, that you haven't really been subjected to before. Uh, you say up uh, too much. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the microphone's in, in your mouth. Uh, you have to have a good pair of shoes. I think you have to walk. I walked almost many, many, many precincts in this town. This is something I really wanted to do. Um, so you have to get out and work for it and tell people who you are and what you're about. And that is um, tiring. You know, I, I was motivated. It's the only thing I want to do. Education is what I care about. I have no interest in anything else. Um, so this is I'm where I want to be to serve, I, you know. And, of course, uh, among the political offices, so to speak, the elected offices instead of political, I should say, among the elected offices uh, to for people to vote for, you know, people focus on the big, the big right. position. So... It's probably difficult at times to get attention to um, a, a race for this kind of position in our community. It, it, it is, but in some ways it's not because everybody has a connection to SRJC. Uh-huh. Everybody cares. It's, it's really a phenomenal thing in this community. If you say SRJC and you're running for the board, everyone goes, oh, I went there, my kids go there, you know, whatever. And so there is a, this connection that I think is a little different than, than other community colleges in the state. We are a very unique, special school. Well, it's, uh, I, I hear that, and the uh, election is coming up soon, and Maggie Fishman's name will uh, <laughs> be on the ballot for uh, the board of SRJC. And we want to thank you very much for being with us on this Thursday morning and sharing your passion for the Santa Rosa Junior College and the education system of our county. Okay. So thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA-LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, kpca.fm online. And we'll see you in our second segment in three minutes.
morning, Petaluma. Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted here at KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, kpca.fm online. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center and Chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back to the second segment of this week's program. And our guest during this segment is Rabbi David Bush from the Chabad Jewish Center of Petaluma. It's great to have you here in the studio today. Good morning, Rabbi Feldman. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here, and I want to take the opportunity to wish you and all the listeners and the entire Jewish community and the wider community a Shana Tova, a good and a sweet new year, blessed with nachas, gizunt, and parnasa, with health, wealth, and prosperity, and everything that your heart desires for the good. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you, thank you. Yes, the uh, past, uh, this past Monday uh, in the Jewish community, we celebrated Rosh Hashanah, the new year on the Jewish calendar. And next year, uh, next year, next week is uh, Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the themes of this season uh, in a few moments. But first, I wanted our listeners to have the opportunity to get to know a little bit about you. And so, if you could tell a little bit about your background, where you came from, studied, how you got to Petaluma out here in the Wild West. Absolutely. So, I uh, grew up and was raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, My parents, uh, my father came from Phoenix, Arizona. My mom came from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And, you know, through various life journeys, they both sort of took the same educational route, going to Harvard and Florence, Italy, but at different times. And, you know, through some sort of divine coincidence, they both ended up in Berkeley at the same time and met at the Chabad in Berkeley some 43 years ago at a Purim party. So the rest is history, and it's great to be back in the Northern California neighborhood after my wife and I married, my wife Devorah is from San Diego. Um, we met through a mutual family friend, and we uh, were living in New York for a bit. We moved to Boston, where we ran uh, all of the kids' programs at a Chabad Center over there for about three and a half years. And after that, we were thinking, all right, we're ready for the next stage, whatever that may be, and we we looked for a community that would be a conducive spot to start up a new Chabad. And we heard about Petaluma and its rich Jewish history, and uh, everything that we heard about it sounded so great. So here we are. Well, welcome. Thank well, welcome. you. You made it here. So you, uh, for the listeners who may not know, what, what is Chabad? What is that, what is that about? Absolutely. So there's sort of two elements of Chabad. There's the historical element, which is about 350 years ago, there were uh, a segment of people known as mystics who would travel from town to town. And one of them was known as the Baal Shem Tov, uh, who is the now known as the Hasidic master who basically started up all sorts of various Hasidic sects. Um, these, these different groups were started by his students. But some of what he stood for, some of his ideals were, uh, first and primarily, a lot of the Kabbalah had been very um, 
it, it was only for unique individuals, you know, very spiritual people to access. It was not for the common folk. And what he did was he started, you know, sort of, uh, if you will, democratizing Kabbalah, making it more accessible to the everyday person. Kabbalah is the Jewish mystical movement. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank yes. you. So it's sort of like the inner dimension of what's going on um, in the Torah and the mitzvahs, the various commandments. Um, and, you know, another thing that Tavashanto stood for was recognizing the unique uh, power within the individual, that it's not just the greatest and the sages and the scholars that are able to determine the destiny of the of the Jewish people in the world, but it's even the uh, regular individual who's able to do that. And, you know, I, I think it's a revolutionary concept. Now it's actually a lot more commonplace. For instance, you know, nowadays people will recycle. They'll be careful not to use plastic straws, all sorts of things like that. And if you think about it, how can one individual really make a difference? But if every individual lends their hand, we do make a difference. And so the Balsamtuf was all about, um, it, you know, that every single individual really does matter. We have, uh, we each have a soul. We're each powerful in our own way. Uh, so we have what to bring to the table. More recently, um, in the 1960s, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who uh, led the Chabad movement for some 50 years, um, he started, unlike other Hasidic groups, instead of keeping everybody very insular in one community, he advocated that we should go out and share this approach to Judaism with the world and communities around the globe. And uh, there's now some 4,000 Chabad centers globally where it, it, the, the goal is basically to make Judaism fun and accessible uh, to people who might not otherwise have an opportunity to engage. So I would just um, th no, thank you sure. for that introduction to, uh, to the Chabad movement. I would uh, add that uh, the Lubavitcher Rabbi, the, in the initial stages of uh, Hasidism, each town got had its rabbi, and the rabbi of that town was named after by the town. So Lubavitch was a town from which the Lubavitcher Rebbe came from Lubavitch. Uh, ultimately, Chabad became the moniker for the organization, and it's based on a Hebrew acronym for Chochmah, Bina, and Deya, for uh, wisdom, discernment, understanding, uh, knowledge, and uh, that's where Chabad gets its name. So uh, it used to be uh, in the earlier days that we would say the Lubavitcher Hasidim, but now it's more common to hear the word uh, Chabad, Absolutely. referring to the group, yes. And, you know, the idea is, um, with Chabad, with this wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, um, the idea is that we should really understand and appreciate why we do what we do. Uh -huh. That it shouldn't just be, I'm doing it because my bubby, my grandmother did it, but it should be because I appreciate it. It means something to me. Yes, so, okay, so here we are at uh, this season of the year that uh, gets a lot of focus in Jewish life of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, so w what would you say about the themes of these holidays? What are the important messages that you try to share with your community uh, about being together as a community on these observances? So 
I was actually just speaking uh, earlier. We were talking about how the high holidays in Hebrew are called Yomim Noraim. They're awesome days. Um, in today's terminology, awesome is a good thing. It's an exciting thing. Um, but, you know, these days, they really are awesome. They're great days of connecting, great days of uh, inner reflection. Uh, talking to the point that we were mentioning earlier about the power of the individual and how, you know, we each can bring something to, to the table. Um, one of the images that we think about when we think about Yom Kippur is the scale. And, you know, we sort of, like, dread that image of, like, I'm being judged, of do I have more good deeds or otherwise. And it's sort of like this, you know, scary sort of moment. But to look at it in a slightly different viewpoint, when you have a scale, and Maimonides mentions this, one good deed can tip the scale in favor. And so Maimonides says, you should imagine the world and your own personal life as if it is a scale and it's exactly equal. And all it takes is just one positive deed, a smile to a neighbor, a favor, right? An act of charity, of kindness. And that can tip your own scale and the communal scale in the side of merit. Well, yes, in this, uh, this period of time, these days of awe uh, from a Jewish point of view are days of self-reflection, of, of repentance and renewal, of looking at our deeds and things we may have done or not done, and evaluate where we want to go in the year ahead. And of course, your allusion to the fact that the liturgy sometimes is pretty stark is, is challenging at times. And so that notion that there's a scale balancing where one good deed can make a difference is an important message, particularly in our world today when uh, there's a lot of tension among people and different groups and we're, we're suffering from that piece. Not that it's never happened before. It has indeed happened before in history. It's probably part of human nature, but we are constantly striving. So that's important. Of course, what, and one of the prayers, and I think I mentioned to you when we were talking for t about today, uh, when Rabbi George Gittleman was on, my colleague from Congregation Shomrei Torah in uh, Santa Rosa, we were talking about the prayer Unatana Tokef, which is one of the central prayers in the Machzor, the High Holiday Prayer Book, um, that its stark language is very challenging in today's world. And how do you, how do you handle that with people? Because I've met people who haven't returned to the synagogue because they, they heard that language of who shall live and who shall die, and who by fire and who by water, etc. Absolutely. So um, it is a very interesting prayer. Um, I think it's super important. We need to read to the end of the prayer. Of course. <laughs> so as you're going through this prayer, there's different things that we can concentrate on and meditate on. And sometimes we get stuck on the sort of more stark parts of it, and we don't actually reach the end. So this concept that God counts us as a, as a shepherd would count his sheep. In other words, every single one of us matters. And the actions of every single one of us matters, that he does care about what I do and what you do. Um, it's not just totally random. You know, I think one of the most comforting things about believing in God is that then the world isn't random. Why is the world you know, moving the way that it does, 
right? If there's no God, so then it's just sort of, it happens, and there's no rhyme or reason to why it happens. But if there is, so then I sort of, uh, you know, ascribe to this, you know, reality that Hashem has a plan, that God has a plan, um, and my actions do matter, and they make a difference. So under normal circumstances, being that it's Rosh Hashanah, it's the day that, uh, that it's actually not the day of the creation of the world, it's the sixth day of the creation when Adam was created, um, Adam and Eve, when sort of the actors came to the stage, and the stage is set, and, you know, the lights are on, the music's playing, and, you know, here we are, we're here to make a difference in the world. And we each have our own mission, our own, what we're here to do, and when we do that, so then we would expect that good things were to happen, right? And then, if not, then under normal circumstances, we would say, okay, this guy isn't fulfilling his role. But, right, when we get to the end of the prayer of Natanatoka, it says, well, that's normally what would happen on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. God would be judging as to see who shall live and who shall die, and who by fire and who by water. However, Teshuvah, Tefillah, and Tzedakah, that these three big things of repentance, prayer, and charity can avert the severity of the decree. In other words, we control our destiny. We have choice. We have choice. We, you know, whatever happened yesterday, whatever happened this past year, whether I lived up to my hopes and aspirations, my dreams, what I thought that I could or couldn't do, if I choose today to say, you know what, I want to do something better, then Hashem said, God says, you know what, I need you. That's why I put you on this earth, and we're going to bless you with a good and a sweet new year. And yes, and I, that's pretty much what I say about the prayer. I said, let's focus on those last six words at the end of it and not on the, the part up leading up to it that sometimes can be challenging for us, but to remind us that we do have these, uh, these choices. Absolutely. We have these choices. It's all a lead-up to to that moment, and then if you look, read in the next paragraph, it says, you know, God doesn't desire the death of those deserving death. He desires that they, uh, you know, sort of reform themselves and, and become who they, they can be. Um, and it, a famous story of uh, that we read on Yom Kippur is the story of Jonah and the whale and how he was sent to the city of Nineveh, and he was very apprehensive about going because they had wicked ways, and he didn't want to, like, reprimand them. But really, all that God wanted was that he should go and give them the message. And when he, when he did, they said, yeah, sure, no problem. We're going to, you know, become better. And they did. And, you know, the story ends happily ever after. Happily ever after. Yes, I, was, you know, I always think that um, the prayer book on the High Holidays is called the Machzor. And uh, from a just a, a statistical point of view, the Machzor is probably the one holy book of Judaism that most Jews touch and right. have access to. They don't necessarily read the majority out there, the, the broad-based Jewish population. They don't necessarily touch the Bible or study the Bible. They don't necessarily look at the Talmud and the ancient traditions or the Mephoshim, the commentaries or any of that. It's this one book that gets their hands on it the most. And I think about it, and yet it's probably the least familiar. They may know Bible stories, at least in the movie, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so 
it's really, in some ways, um, our job, our mutual job as rabbis, to make sure that the or that these words in the uh, prayer book become accessible to our people. Otherwise, this most touched book uh, won't really make it. Absolutely. So at the end of, uh, of Yom Kippur, we have an Elah service, and the image is the closing of the gates, and that all these decisions that God has now been weighing on our uh, spreadsheets of life are now going to be evaluated. And is this truly the end of the, uh, of the opportunity? So I've got to tell you, Ni'ilah is actually my favorite prayer of Yom Kippur. And, you know, like you said, the traditional imagery of Ni'ilah is this sort of desperate, you know, run to, you know, let me get there before the gates close, right? And we all have that experience heading to the supermarket, you know, a few minutes before closing. And it's this last attempt at, you know, forgiveness, as it were. Um, the Rebbe had a very different perspective on what the Ela is all about, and indeed what Yom Kippur is all about. And what that is, is as a parent or as a child, we all know that there's two ways of relating to uh, our parent or child. There is what they do. And if they're doing the right things and they're getting along with their siblings and friends, it makes us proud. It gives us nachas. We love seeing that when they're excelling in, in school. We love that. However, what happens if they're not? So on one level, we may be disappointed. But at, on a much deeper core level, I'm their father. And as such, I always love them. And that will never change. Because they're my child, and there is this essential bond. On Yom Kippur, we are discovering and we're exploring, we're finding within ourselves, our inner soul, our inner self, which is connected to God without any sort of, uh, without any sort of, in other words, the details and minutia of what I did and what I didn't do. On that level, it doesn't matter, because I'm connecting like a father and a child. And just to share, we, we sing on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we sing a, a familiar song to many the Avinu Malkeinu, a father of king. Avinu Malkeinu, Chaneinu Vaneinu. Avinu Malkeinu, Chaneinu Vaneinu, Ki ein Vanu Maasim. Aseimanu, Tzedaka Vachesed. Aseimanu, Tzedaka Vachesed, Vehoshienu. Our Father, our King. So, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we have that relationship where Hashem is like our King, and He is. And in that situation, you know, God is the King, and so we're standing in judgment, and there's sort of this, uh, you know, how's it going to turn out? But God is also our Father. He's also a Vino. The parable is given of a King who, um, He sends the crown prince out into the field, into the villages, because he wants to, you know, if you're really going to become the leader of this country, you've got to go out, meet the people, and learn what this country is all about. So the young prince, he goes out, and he takes his allowance with him, and he starts meeting people. But then, as he's traveling, he notices a tavern, and he sits down, he starts schmoozing, he enjoys a good drink. Before he knows it, he starts slowly but surely becoming like one of the townspeople. 
and he forgets about his origins as royalty. And as such, what happens? He starts losing his way. He loses sight of his mission. He loses sight of, of proper decorum and how to carry himself and uh, his royal clothes go out, go the way of everything until he's really in a bad place. And his clothes start disheveled and his hair is long. And he's even forgotten his language that he spoke in the, in the palace of the king. One day, he ends up and he's back at the, at the palace and he recognizes it and it brings back these memories. This is, you know, months or years down the line and it brings back these memories. It's like, this is my home. And so he goes over to the guards. He says, can I please come in? And they say, get out of here. You're a crazy person. What do you mean? You know, you don't look anything like, you know, the prince. And he realizes just how sad his situation is. And then what does he do? He doesn't have a choice. He, 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 he can't even speak the language. And so he just cries out a simple cry from his heart. And that cry, the king hears it, and he recognizes his child's voice. And he, of course, he comes out and he welcomes him with open arms because that's what a father does. And as we're, as we're praying and as we're getting together for Yom Kippur, I think it's such a powerful thing to realize that, yes, there's this Malkinu thing, there's this relationship as a king, but then there's also a relationship of a father. And, and so when we talk about Ne'ilah and the closing of the gates, instead of it being that I'm trying to get into the gates, Ne'ilah, the closing of the gates, the gates are closing, but we're on the inside. Hashem has already taken us into his inner, God has taken us into his inner chambers, into his throne room. And we're sitting there with him. We're having that special time of just a father and a child. The angels are outside and the heavenly guards are outside. And, and we're there with, it, with him in this special and unique moment. And of course, after Me'ilah, we have the opportunity to perform other mitzvot, other commandments to solidify our path back, our teshuvah, by performing the mitzvot for the following holiday, which comes on the Jewish calendar right on the heels of Yom Kippur, which is Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's a, an intimate connection, right? Some Jews will begin building this temporary hut called the Sukkah right after Yom Kippur to show that they're committed to remain in that palace of, of God's presence and to live up to the ideals that they're working toward over these holidays. Absolutely, and the holiday of Sukkot is called the Festival of Joy. It's a time of celebration, and uh, it says that the same things that we accomplish on the high holidays through prayer and repentance and all of those sorts of expressions on Sukkot, we accomplish the very same things, but in the uh, realm of joy. So it's a, a celebration because, of course, we're confident that we're going to come out of the high holidays being blessed for a good and a sweet new year. So it's a joyous holiday yes. that comes on the heels there. And uh, in fact, in the Torah, of course, it says, You should be particularly uh, joyful during these holidays. Maybe because Yom Kippur is over and it's a hard day, <laughs> and that's the Aksameyat, or, or 
the fact that we're now celebrating the bounty of the earth, of God's creation, and that we're able to consume it and sustain ourselves. Absolutely. And that's the, the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem on that behalf. The Medrash actually talks how the lulav that we hold is sort of like this. The palm branch, yes. The, the palm branch. It's sort of like, you know, after a successful battle, you go out and you have a parade and you're holding your thing aloft. Uh-huh. And so similarly, the lulav is, we were, you know, we succeeded in the high holidays and so now we're particularly joyous. It was a particularly joyous festival, a particularly joyous festival. So uh, as we move toward the conclusion of our program, I see you brought your shofar with you. And so before we make too much noise over the, uh, the airways here, um, what is the shofar? And tell us a little bit about it. We have a little bit of time left. So the shofar is a ram's horn, traditionally, although it can be uh, the horn of any kosher animal, like a goat, um, or the big twisty ones comes from an animal called a kudu. And we blow the shofar. It has multiple different symbolisms, uh, two of them. One is it, uh, it's like an alarm bell, and it arouses us to this whole concept of repentance. And the other one is on Rosh Hashanah, we, we sort of coronate God as our king uh, once more, the same way that Adam did so on the first day of his existence. Every year we renew, we re-elect God as our uh, ruler. And so just like by a coronation, they blow the trumpets, so too on Rosh Hashanah we blow the shofar. Right. And there are three notes that we're going to sound? That's correct. So the tikiyah is a long note, and then the shavarim are sort of medium-length blasts, and the the teruah are these short uh, consecutive blasts. I'll call the uh, I'll call the notes for you. Tikiya. Shvarim. Truah. Tikiya. Those sounds of alarm to awaken us, to make ourselves uh, alert and aware of God's presence and the mitzvot available, the commandments available to us for the new year coming for us. So I want to thank you, Rabbi David Bush from the Chabad Jewish Center of Petaluma for being with us. And uh, the greeting at this time of the year is Gemar Chatimah Tova. May you be sealed for a good and great and beautiful year ahead. Thank you, Rabbi Feldman, and Agmar Chatimatova to you as well and to the entire community. Uh, it's wonderful to be a part of this community and uh, so great to be your Shana Tova. Thank you, and you are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Thank you. Hey there, Petaluma. I'm Dominic Delbeni, host of Origin Stories. 
Every week, we examine the DNA of hip-hop classics, focusing on the songs that were sampled to make the songs that you love. Tune in to hear the jazz, funk, soul, and rock that make up the best of today's rap music. Tuesdays from 10 to noon, here on KPCA 103.3 FM. I heard there was a new radio station in town. Oh, oh, you mean Free Range Radio KPCA at 103.3 FM? Yeah, that's right. How did you know about that? Well, I just look where all good information comes from, Facebook. Just follow the Free Range Radio KPCA page and join the discussion. Just keep it polite. Facebook? Yeah. Our on-air personalities will post updates and information on their shows, as well as events and news concerning the station. Ever wish you could go back in time to a classic concert? Hi, this is Ed Perlstein. Each week I play two hours of live concert recordings from my personal collection. These are rare, unreleased rock and blues performances you've never heard before. Tune into the Live Archive Show each Friday at 5 p.m. on KPCA 103.3 FM or streaming online at kpca.fm. Free Range Radio KPCA is a nonprofit, low power community radio station. Through member programming, the station promotes diversity and a window to the unique personalities in our community. Our mission is to promote freedom of expression provide access to communication tools, and to foster the use of media and technology to better benefit Petaluma. For more information about KPCA and how to get involved, visit kpca.fm. 